0: On air, online, and across Cambridge. Your station, your FM.
1: Hi, welcome to the Science of Fiction. Uh, today's topic will be Games in Fiction, Fiction in Games, which is actually the, the last show of this season, though we'll be back um, in the autumn. Um, our guest today is Leonard Rich- Richardson, who's the author of me- well, many things, um, including, most recently, uh, Constellation Games, which is a first contact novel about video games. Um, what were you trying to do with that Leonard.
2: um i read uh the not quite science fiction novel lucky Wanderboy, boy uh, a few years ago and i thought this is a really interesting idea this is a story about games a kind of story i haven't seen before but i think i can do better by adding space aliens and so i added space aliens to a uh sort of coming of age story about video games.
1: I'm, I'm pretty sure almost no story can't be improved by adding aliens.
2: I have yet to find one. Pride and Prejudice? And aliens? <laughs> There's <laughs> Pride point. and Prejudice with zombies
0: though, and some people
2: love that. Yes, but what if it was Pride and Prejudice and zombies and aliens?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I've been enjoying reading, well, the first two thirds of it, which have been arriving by uh, email serialization of all things. And Andy, Andy, you haven't read it, have you?
0: No, I haven't read it. So wh- what do you mean by email serialisation? Does, does this mean I voluntarily sign up for London to spam me personally?
2: I, I will do that for free.
0: <laughs> no, but, uh, so more seriously, presumably you're, uh-huh. this is a, a book that is in some sort of email format that I can get serial to- segment by segment rather than reading it in a sort of conventional format.
2: Sure. So the uh, the publisher is Candlemark and Gleam, and I wrote the story for serialization. And what we're doing is we're sending out one chapter a week. Uh, the serialization will be done at the end of July, and after that, uh, you'll be able to buy an ebook. Um, you can already buy a paper book, but I don't recommend that for most of the people listening because the cost of shipping. The book uh, across the ocean exceeds the cost of the book. So, um, but I do recommend you uh, get in on the serial and then uh, get an ebook at the end.
0: So this kind of reminds me a bit. And um, is this where you got the idea from, Ken MacLeod's Learning the World, where he sort of wrote that as a bit of a, it's sort of like blog post earlier on in the book?
2: I have Learning the World on my shelf. I haven't read it. Uh, the The impetus to write the story like this came from um, uh, someone who had been a fan of my first published short story, Mallory, which is also about video games. Um, He ran a uh, video game news site, and he wanted me to write some serial fiction, Um, but it took much longer for me to write my first novel than anticipated and by the time i was done uh the new site had sort of moved in a different direction uh so oh. i just i just started shopping it around to publishers as a as a completed manuscript
0: i think that's quite normal for people's first book to overrun i also told it's a fairly hellish thing to do the first time and perhaps every other time <laughs> it's well, something re- you hate until it's published
2: yeah, and I am I'm still not done because the serialization is happening. Um, so I've been writing uh, commentary to go along with each week's serialization. So uh, it has been with me for a lot longer than I thought it would, but the end is in sight.
0: You really like making yourself suffer, don't you? Uh, I so how do computer games feature in it? Games, video games.
2: The uh, basic plot of the novel is that a confederation of alien anarchists uh comes to earth uh makes contact with humanity and the protagonist decides that the most important thing he can do is get copies of the aliens video games so that he can start a business porting them to human computers
1: i actually kind of want to play some of the games that he's been porting to human computers
2: uh, yes, I would too. A lot of them are based on games that I wish existed, uh, A lot of, but a lot of them are just based on thinking about how a game might work if your body or your psychology was drastically different from a human being.
0: Right. Do you know that's a plot of um, Super Space Invaders in 91 by Taito was that the aliens found a copy of Space Invaders and then built sort of... Well, the story's not very clear because it's Space Invaders, but they sort of <laughs> use that to then come back and invade us in the style of Space Invaders because they thought it was real. Um, the main sure. thing about that game that everyone should play it for is there's a bit where you have to save cows from UFOs which come down and pick up the cows.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in a few minutes, we'll, we'll start by, after a song, we'll start by discussing the, the first half of today's title, which is uh, how games are represented in fiction as a whole. Um, so... This is a pre recorded episode, so if you're listening live, the web form and emailing studio at Cam as normal is not going to work because we're not going to be in the studio. Um, but if you want to send us feedback or questions, you can tweet at um, Leonard R or think outreach, or you can email show at scienceofiction.co.uk. Um, and we'll be back with you after this.
3: Take me to a big. City, your station,
0: your Cambridge,
3: your Cam FM.
1: Welcome back to the science of fiction. That was um, about fun by SAP.
2: So, my friend uh, Holly Gramazio, uh, a while back, gave a talk on games and fiction. And in preparation for this talk, she put up a spreadsheet on Google Docs, which a lot of people added to. These are just works of fiction in which a game is important and there are about 160 entries in this spreadsheet and she discovered among other interesting tidbits that in most stories about games the game uh kills somebody about 60 percent of the time
1: (laughs) what one one way or another
2: one way or another maybe by design maybe by accident but so we're talking
0: uh, like the running man
2: no, it's a yes, game, or, and you die. Or uh, The Most Dangerous Game, or uh, Logan's Run. There, That's technically a game, although nobody ever wins it.
1: I guess, I guess, I haven't watched it, but I guess Hunger Games or Reddit. Hunger Games, from the description of being Battle Royale with cheese, um, sounds like it probably involves some death.
2: Yes, I and Hunger.
1: Uh-huh. Which, uh, yeah, that would... <laughs> I'm just, that, I'm, that, 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 that was standard reason I
2: I'm haven't seen through, it either I'm just, I'm just
1: I'm just going on the name yeah b- b- based on the two pieces of information we have I, not, I, I love the, the columns of this being you know, you know t- title of the work uh, we'll, we'll put a link to this in the show notes title of the work you know who's it by what's the audience does it turn deadly
0: that's, uh, that's all you need to know isn't it if you're going to play a game you want to know if it turns deadly it's not going to be good if you turn up and suddenly you lose a limb it would be embarrassing
1: yeah, well, but, but, but a lot of fiction seems to deal with this, so I guess th- th- there's just there's justification for it.
0: I, I just I, like the fact, because I've just been going through this list, and it's like, some of these things are completely forgotten, like the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where they made a game to hypnotise and take over the entire crew.
2: I think it was an addictive game.
1: Ah, uh, okay.
0: Uh, but yeah, I, I do lo- I like this breakdown of what you're most likely to die in. Is it the most deadliest organisation to set up your game is the government, which is probably no surprise. But then it's ordinary women, TV executives, and then psychotic killers, which kind of seems odd that psychotic kittens aren't at the top.
1: I guess like saying, you know, most of the depictions of games in fiction involve, or a majority involve death, is kind of maybe a reductive way of looking at it. They're treated a bunch of different ways.
2: Right. I would say that most of the time the story is that the stakes of the game turn out to be higher in some way than you thought they would going in. Um, the classic example of this f- for me is Ender's Game, um, which has a lot of, you know, sort of fun war game tactical uh, type stories. And then at the risk of spoiling Ender's Game, uh, at the very end, it turns out that it's all horrifyingly real.
1: Mm. Uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of the inverse of the, um, and then they woke up and it was all a dream or a virtual reality simulation story.
2: Yes, and that's a story that, as you can see from the spreadsheet, gets copied a lot. You think it's a game, it turns out not to be a game, or the game has somehow invaded real life, and the reason I think it works in Ender's Game and not necessarily elsewhere is Ender's Game presents a scenario where people actually do use games. People do use uh, war games and simulations in military training, um, and somewhat... Prophetically, uh, war itself is now frequently uh, fought through the same interface as you would uh, play a game. Right,
1: which which brings a whole kind of chilling edge to the whole, well, to to, to war as a whole.
0: Well, Ian Banks in uh, Matter, they have the war against afterlives, and that's about where they've agreed to have a game in a virtual, a virtual reality world where they can have the war rather than in the real. Because if they do that, then no one actually has to die, and you don't have to have the destruction. Except, of course, the first thing that happens is when the people lose in the virtual reality, that they just take it into the real universe.
1: Yeah, well, Banks has used a lot of uh, has has used games to represent conflict in a lot of his a lot yeah, of his works. Yeah, I mean, works. it's
0: a standard culture theme, isn't it? That the culture takes war into synthetic environments.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like, well, the, the one which even has the name of the title is The Player of Games. Yeah. Uh, where the protagonist um, is a, an expert games player. And he's um, sent as a kind of emissary of sorts to this particularly, quote-unquote, brutal regime. Where um, most of their society is governed through this uh, game of Azad. Um, and it, it transpires that he's playing the game according to his culture ethics which gives him a different rather different strategy to the to the to the to the Azadian peoples playing at the game
2: I read the player of games just recently I was saving it because I didn't want to uh, rip it off when I was writing constellation games and I read it and I was struck by the resemblance to Herman Hesse's the glass bead game which is a much older novel, um, I don't think he would classify it as science fiction, but it certainly reads very science fictional, um, of another another game that is central to a culture and sort of expresses the uh, the workings of the culture. And the play, the game in Azod in the Player of Games uh, reminded me of sort of a twisted uh, version of the Glass Bead game.
1: But, but preserving a lot of the well, a lot of the kind of social structure built upon this game, and I guess reinforcing so- social norms like only the only one gender plays the game.
2: Right in the in the player of games, it's the there's a three gendered species playing this game, and the uh, it's called the apex gender is the the f- dominant gender of this species. They're the only ones who play the game, and in in the glass bead game for no real reason. I can see only men are ever shown playing this game.
0: Is that just the era it was written in?
2: I'm not sure. Because,
0: I mean, but, there is just... He's fine in fiction, but that's sort of his idea when you go back away. But, of course, women are kind of ignored, which is just archaic.
2: Certainly, but uh, what Banks does is... is I, I feel like he read the glass bead game and... and uh, it uh, took took the implicit uh, s- sexism and other other awful things in the background and sort of brought them to the foreground for the player of games.
1: Yeah, but the, the strange thing about um, the player of games in particular is that I guess he's slightly setting it up as you know the Azadians are a metaphor for us, um, but in some, but well, perhaps, but. In a similar way, the culture's kind of meddling antics, where most of the most of the citizens don't really seem to care that they that they're flying around, you know, helping other people and manipulating them and tricking them, um, sounds a bit like us as well. Has
0: has the culture ever actually helped anyone? It's it's very debatable.
2: What has the culture ever done for us?
4: <laughs>
0: well, it, it just feels like his culture. It, it it it's so into trying to get people. Into to follow the greats of the culture and evolve. So if you want technology, they'll only let you have it on their system. It's all governed to bring you into becoming part of the culture. It doesn't seem to be to make you develop into a different culture. Mm-hmm. Annoying overuse of words, but where yeah, and, I mean,
1: and, and you can't see a capital C versus a lowercase <laughs> C on the radio.
0: Yeah, but um, where and I think that is the culture is all about homogenizing. Everyone so they'll end up being united. That's as far as I can work out. I mean, I haven't read all of Ian Banks' work, but I don't think he's ever tried to portray anything particularly great about the culture. And certainly the underhand and the nastiness that goes on with their equivalent of black ops in the background, manipulating every single thing that goes on. Uh, what they call it special circumstances. Um, it's just clearly that it's a totally manipulative basis for society. And I actually have I ever has he actually done a book which really focus on a normal person living in the culture or would it just be tenuously dull?
2: There's a lot of it in the player of games, and I found it very dull. <laughs>
1: right, I, I guess you know showing people having a great time, not really caring about what they're up to, uh, in a utopian society. Probably not that interesting for very long.
0: I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? The culture is meant to be utopian for those in it. So is it? So they see as what they're doing is a good thing and bring everyone into the culture. But,
1: but, but the interesting the, the, in- the, the interesting stories are at the fringes of that, of course, as as they often are in fiction.
0: Well, it's in oh, which is the one that's set in the multiple layers of the planet, the planet in multiple layers. Uh, anyway, there's a race living down there, and one of the guys, it's uh, it's still a theorocracy, it's um, patriarchy, and they've got several levels of princes and stuff. And basically, there's a coup, and some of you will get wiped out, some of you will don't. And one of them goes off to find his sister and bring him back. But the interesting thing is, when he goes off into the culture, the comment is, his father's, it refers back to a previous conversation with his father, where they said that they're the lucky people, not the people in the culture, because. They don't have anything to, str- so they can strive for all these things. They're living in a place where everything's changing, everything's growing, where those in the culture have everything, so there's nothing more to gain. And I, I, I mean, that's quite an interesting point is that do the culture, they can experience whatever they feel like, but do they just do it for the sake of experience, or do they do it for the sake of living? And it's quite hard to work out what the two is, where the line draws really.
1: I mean, do we, do we play games for any reason other than uh, for, for, for enjoyment I mean there's, there's, there's a lot of things people do games being a big one which have no obvious uh, direct direct benefit, but they're still fun so yeah so bad
0: no but you don't have to do things for a good reason but it is, it is an interesting point is if we had no opportunity to, to further ourselves what would that mean
1: hmm yeah A good question well asked, which I don't have an answer to.
0: No, you're not meant to, unless you're a great philosopher. (laughs) Anyway, I think with that we should move on to the next track. 97.2
2: camfm.co.uk
0: on air and online your camfm
2: uh that track was a clip from the fratsophone a musical instrument created by my friend adam Parrish, which makes ambient music from the process of playing a text adventure that particular clip was him playing zork until he was killed by a troll
1: so, so presumably this this takes the his sequence of key presses or whatever and uh, turns that into notes on a particular scale.
2: As I recall, it works on the current state of the game. So if you move to a different room, maybe it will switch to a different key. If you drop an item, it will uh, put a different voice into the melody, things like that.
1: Huh. So, so it, it, based on the structure of the game, not just on... Some kind of uh, uh, um, uh, yeah command stream or state of the state of the state of the window, or whatever.
2: Right. Yeah. It's it's based on the the structure of the game as the score, and I think it just gets repeated until that state changes.
0: Right. But this is this is generative rather than something say uh, Deus Ex or any of the Unreal Engine games, which had interactive music where they could bring in and up the tempo and change things due to a whole set of music. It was meant to be overlaid to make the music reflect what was going on. This is spontaneously generative, rather than a set of music that can be changed for the setting.
2: Right. Yeah. This is um, whatever whatever the state of the uh, virtual machine is, the uh, chords and uh, the chords and notes being played by the instrument uh, correspond.
1: Yeah. I... I I guess there there were kind of steps in between those two extremes. So in in Portal 2, I think they had a bunch of samples, like samples of different fragments of a song, which were assembled by events in the game. So it was... um, There was a slightly more granular palette than there was in Deus Ex, but not to the extent of generating literally a a MIDI stream or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess this this, this brings us pretty neatly to... um, Well generative art and content in art and games which are of course art Uh,
2: yes Uh, uh, Adam teaches a class at NYU uh, about generative art and every year they have a big uh, series of demos and uh, Adam and I are both interested in this Um, I'm interested in the work of the Dadaists of the early 20th century, um, not because they achieved their goals of uh, destroying the concept of art, but because they brought these techniques, uh, these techniques of randomness into the world of art, and because people are so good at finding patterns in randomness, um, their, their sort of plot failed, but the act of finding a pattern in randomness is a powerful spur to creativity. And uh, generative art is, to my mind, um, a lot lot about putting a bunch of of randomly generated pieces together and then using your mind uh, to curate them and create a, a result that's pleasing.
0: So when you say the ability for people to see stuff in randomness is... Uh, actually very good. You're talking about things like the man in the moon, the face on Mars, and all those things, where we see faces a lot, as well as other patterns.
2: Yes, and if if you see a a string of random words, you'll try to impose uh, a meaning on them, and depending on how the random words were generated, it might be easier or uh, more difficult.
0: So does this mean these things which try and generate random Stories. A lot of the time, actually, it's the person imposing the meaning, and the randomness is just total gibberish.
2: Well, the the randomness, yeah, the person is definitely imposing the meaning. The randomness might be more or less intelligent, but certainly all of the meaning comes from the reader. But,
1: but yeah, and again, you guys you can tweak quite how random it is based on you know what what materials you're working for from. So there's the whole. Um, trend of people, activity where people use um, Markov chains to um, take a bunch of sample text and turn it into a statistical model uh, from which you can generate faintly plausible things that whoever wrote those texts um, might have said. So for example I saw one today where um, Guybrush Threepwood, the protagonist from um, Monkey Island, has been turned into a Markov chain Twitter bot. Someone played through the game and wrote down everything or recorded everything that Guybrush said and then used it to feed this model which tweets every so often with a faintly Guybrushy thing to say.
2: <laughs> Adam is a big fan of Markov chains. I think that they're a, a little bit lacking. I think they tend to sound like somebody rambling on and on, uh, sort of losing track of what they're saying because uh, mathematically that's kind of what's happening in the Markov chain. Uh, there's a uh, technique I call the Canoe Assembly um, maybe that's how you pronounce his name I'm not sure uh, I named it but it's named after Raymond Keno, who wrote a 1961 book 100,000 Billion Poems in which uh, it's uh, I think about 10 sonnets and they're all bound together, but the pages are slit so that you can lift up just the first line of a sonnet, revealing the second, the first line of the second sonnet beneath. And now you've changed the poem. It starts with a different line. And then you can lift up the seventh uh, line of the first sonnet and see the seventh line of the second sonnet underneath. And you can uh, recombine uh, this, these ten sets of sonnets into a supposedly a hundred thousand billion i think it's actually more than that uh different poems that all rhyme and scan
1: huh i i I remember many years ago as a child having a flip book which which um each page was a picture of a different animal but again it had the pages divided into three so you could have the head of a leopard the body of a lion uh, of an elephant and the feet of a lizard say
0: just tell me you can make a duck a dog
1: I'll, I'll check that for you and get back to you.
0: Yeah, we need to have more duckdolls <laughs> <laughs> in the world.
2: Yeah, that's the that is exactly the idea, and there's certain types of art, uh, certain certain formats where I think the Kanoa Assembly gives much better results. Um, one of them being sonnets. Uh, I did a project called spurious and i did this before i came up with the Kino assembly and before we recorded i discovered that it's not a proper Kino assembly but it's close enough um anyhow this project takes shakespeare's sonnets and puts takes the first line from one sonnet the second line from another and so on and creates a new sonnet um which doesn't Uh, Doesn't rhyme, but generally makes sense because you're generally going from the first part of a sonnet to the last part.
1: So, so this works because they have, because Shakespeare's sonnets have quite a strong thematic structure and also poetic structure. um, Yes, structure in meter. So, even though you've you haven't kept the rhyming elements of it, the progression of the emotion or statement through the sonnet follows a similar trend.
0: So, you could do the same with a limerick, except that the rhyme wouldn't work.
2: That would actually be a great project. I may do that as soon as I, as soon as we stop recording.
1: So, 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 some of these end up being the kind of things people might perform without uh, people raising too much of an eyebrow, an eyebrow.
2: Um. Yes, if you're not paying, if you're not paying too much attention, it might fly right past you. And even if you are paying attention, uh, sometimes there's a, a poignant or uh, emotionally resonant. Uh, juxtaposition of imagery as in as in poetry written by hand
1: do you have an example you could give us
2: I do if you don't think uh, an American reading mashed up Shakespearean sonnets will cause riots in Cambridge
1: I I guess we'll find out
2: sweet thief whence didst thou steal thy sweet that smells and dig deep trenches in thy beauty's field or some fierce thing replete with too much rage Thou makes false graces that to thee resort, making a couplement of proud compare, have faculty by nature to subsist, and grew a seating bath which yet men prove, born on the beer with white and bristly beard. Thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee, and heavily from woe to woe tell o'er. Ruin hath taught me thus to ruminate. I guess one angel in another's hell. No more be grieved at that which thou hast done. With eager compounds we our palate urge.
1: (laughs) If if there are any experts on um, Shakespeare listening, maybe you could write in and let us know quite how badly that mangles this this, uh, ancient and well-loved art form. Back to games for a moment. um, There are actually quite a lot of games which use these kind of generative techniques for things other than the music to a greater or lesser extent.
2: Uh, Yes, my favorites are roguelike games, um, arguably the Diablo series. My favorite roguelikes right now are Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup and Tome 4. Uh, Another one that's very popular, more popular than Tome 4, for instance, is Minecraft, and these games have generative terrain, they build a map and you negotiate the map with whatever tools you have, and I think this is a great technique for games. a game with generative terrain is very replayable because you can't memorize what to do. You have to actually learn the game and develop a strategy. Uh,
1: I, I think it might make it more enjoyable as well. I mean, I, I know that I, I I spend relatively little time playing games. So in a, in a way, playing games where I don't have to spend a long time learning a skill um, it might be good for me. But um, I, I guess you probably get a lot more out of a game if you do have to sort of be a little bit more involved in. Um, something less uh immediate than here is how I get to this exit now when I mean, the only road like game I've ever played is uh nethack and uh my friend Jonathan Whiting um had an had a uh, uh interview on the blog games we have known and loved where he said that you know nethack's one of his favorite games ever and if nethack nethack has an antagonist it's the random number generator in, in, in this same sense, that you you um, you have all these monsters that you have to fight, but they're not really the you know, they're, they're not really the enemies, and they're particularly powerful ones. But they're not really bosses in a conventional sense. I mean, they are kind of structurally, but the goal of the game is not to learn how you defeat you know boss one, two, and three. The goal of the game is to learn how to um, maximize your probability of not being killed by the random number generator as it generates new and difficult levels.
2: Yes, I definitely agree. And to the extent that NetHack has um, boss uh, boss enemies in certain places, it stops uh, it stops having this fun that is is sort of unique to this kind of game. Because you know Medusa is on such and such a level, so you have to wear a blindfold on that level. Um, there's no there's no challenge once you know what's going to happen because you know you can rely on it.
1: Oh, so so so. But once you always know the trick, then you just have to kind of grind your way through this tedious uh, phase to get back to the interesting part.
2: Yes. Uh, So yeah, like with the Medusa level, you're going to get a cheap death once because you open a door and oh my gosh, it's Medusa, you've turned to stone. Well, I won't let that happen again. Um, and Medusa always shows up on the same level. If any door you might open could have Medusa behind it, uh, it would be more roguelike. You'd have to you'd have to have a, a more general strategy for dealing with sudden Medusa attack.
1: Right, and, and, and the game in turn would have to provide a little more um, ability for you to deal with it, other than, like, surprise, you're dead and there are no save games. So you know, your last four hours of progress are, are gone.
2: Ordinarily, yeah. I'd say yes, but NetHack is quite willing to... Right. Uh, just. Does NetHack delete your save games or something as well when you die?
1: Yeah, you, 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 you can only use a save game to pause the game and come back later. They're, they're deleted as soon as they're loaded.
0: But that's evil.
1: Yeah, but it makes the game a lot more interesting. It,
0: it's the idea of you actually die when you die, isn't it? Right, right. A bit more like life. Um, one thing I found, because you mentioned Minecraft earlier, one thing I love about Minecraft is the fact that you can basically make machines in Minecraft, can't you? So, Mm -hmm. if you're a computer scientist and you understand what you're doing, you can make a fully Turing complete machine in there.
2: You would have to be very bored. I think you'd actually have to hack Minecraft because there's a I believe there's a limit to how big you can make a machine in Minecraft. It doesn't have a finite map size, but it will only the game will only simulate a machine a certain radius from you.
1: Uh, Okay, so so there's a bound on how much the machine can work at any given time.
0: There's a predecessor, isn't there, which is called Dwarven Fortress, which is an ASCII art game again. So it's just less on the screen, but again, it, it's you can do an awful lot of things you can do in Minecraft in two dimensions and make machines.
2: Uh, yes, yeah, Dwarf Fortress is uh, a game I like a lot, and it is uh, it is three dimensional now, so you can mm. uh, you can't. Oh, I've I've uh, just taken up a lot of your time with that remark. I suspect. Um, but yeah, you can make uh, three-dimensional machines in Dwarf Fortress. It is really amazing. It is older than Minecraft. It also takes generative content to an extreme. It will uh, create the entire Tolkien-esque history of the world, and then you will pick a little tiny spot of that world to, uh, to make your castle, and pretty much nothing that happened over the course of that entire history will... Uh, will affect your game uh, except in very specific circumstances
1: so I I guess this brings us neatly to talking about uh, storytelling in games after a quick break
0: City,
3: your station,
0: your Cambridge,
3: your Cam FM.
1: So that was uh, "Twisted Streets" by Darren Corb, which is taken from the soundtrack to Bastion, which is part of the most recent Humble Indie Bundle. So maybe some people listening have played it. Um, it's got this. It's, it's a kind of it's a isomorphic, uh, isometric, isomorphic? isometric 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 um, isometric uh, role playing game, uh, which has kind of a nice gimmick that the the narrator um, is, is a narrator telling you the story based on what you do in the game. Um, so you know he as you walk into a room if loads of monsters appear you know, suddenly you know the, the the kid found you know 20 squirts around him squirts aren't much fun to be around and then if you fall off the edge of the world he says oh the boy stumbled and then he fell to his death
0: we should do quite a lot because the controls on the
2: mac at least are terrible um, but i i did i did like that narration because it's uh in a typical game narration is done in cutscenes and there certainly are cutscenes in bastion but in bastion the narrators just basically narrating your individual button presses it's like then then he moved up into the right yes sir
1: and absolutely absolutely in that tone as well
2: yeah just this the scale of it like like having having a minor character from firefly looking over your shoulder uh telling you how you're playing the game i thought that was i thought that was very funny and clever
0: i think also it's that. You know, there's there's always this old adage, adage, but there's nothing new. There's no new art. There's no new, and it's been going on for hundreds of years. People have been, haven't had a new argument on that one at least, anyway. But this is a case example where I've never seen this before as a concept or done before, and well, it can't really exist in the same way before because it is unique to computer games. Uh, so it's very much something that's been generated for this media, and it's cool.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a nice kind of take on. Um, you know, lots of games try to be, you know, multipath and the players' decisions have consequences in this, the players' decisions have very small consequences, which is, you know, the narrator says a slightly different thing. Which is kinda yeah, nice. Yeah,
0: talking about decisions, of course, that had a big effect on a game we've mentioned quite a bit, Mass Effect. And one of the things people were unhappy about was the fact that basically they had to funnel the endings down at the end pretty much to three. And that's it. You know, you've got these forking storyline the whole way along, but at the very end it just can't pull together a lot of storylines.
2: And as I understand it, I haven't played it, but I, I've heard the three endings aren't that much different. So when when they were writing the the first two games, they gave you all of these choices, and and RPGs these days give you these choices. But it's uh, even without this sort of PR disaster at the end of Mass Effect Three, you're, the choices you make aren't really that meaningful uh, because they have to. Um, they have to r- write script. They have to do motion capture for the cutscenes. They have to do, uh, you know, animation and voice work. In in Bastion, all they have to do is, is a little bit of voice work, and they recorded uh, thousands of lines of this, uh, you know, this voice actor sort of s- spinning his homespun wisecracks. And that stuff is expensive. And even in a text adventure... Um, there's a huge combinatorial problem if you let the player do anything like the range of actions that are possible for the three of us right now in real life.
0: Well, Douglas Adams very much got a bit disappointed when Text Adventures died down because he was very keen for the truly interactive storybook. The idea that you could write whatever you liked and it would do whatever you wanted, and that was the basis, I believe, for a lot of Starship Titanic stuff uh but i don't believe it in practice worked as well as that but he was he was predicting a future where it would
1: games having these branches is a relatively new, pr- well, new yes and no. progression
0: i think they've actually got worse at the end of matic because it's so expensive to produce content now a lot a lot of games basically you end up in a room with three buttons and all the choices you made before them yes you've been role playing yes you've been able to choose it but actually you can flip the ending at the last moment if you choose to And the point is, it doesn't work from a role-playing perspective, because if you're role-playing in the traditional sense of actually being that character, you would choose never to push that button. But in terms of how much choice there is in the game, it's very much lower than it could be. Whereas I think there used to be certainly a good level of games where you lock out the ending earlier on. And I think actually Deus Ex uh, Human Revolution, and the original Deus Ex is a good example, is again, there was a very much closing down in the original but you did have to go off in the final area, and you do one of three very convoluted things to get one of the th- all the three different endings. Whereas in the final one, it was three buttons in Human Revolution, and which button you press fired up basically a video cut sequence um, with nowhere near the change and ending. Very much subtle, but that was suffering from a problem that it was a prequel, so it's it like had
2: to a- lead into the, so, the yeah, other one.
0: If you don't, if you if you want to have multiple storylines and you have a sequel already there in case of the prequel you can't have three possible startings though some people just have two non-canon and a canon one which is a way around it but Mass Effect very much wanted to say there was no canon storyline which I think is a brave thing to do but also a slightly naive thing to do
1: Right and I guess it comes back to what you were saying Leonard about um, how many degrees of freedom we have here right now
2: Yeah if you're if you're playing, if you're playing an RPG with someone, you're, it's it's human to human. There's a lot of improvisation possible, um, and if you want something like uh, like Douglas Adams's dream of you you basically do whatever you want, there's a pretty simple solution that's pretty popular. You get another person, you get some other people, and you all agree to pretend that whatever you're saying is actually happening.
1: Right, and then then you don't have to film any of it ahead of time.
2: Yeah, it's it's much cheaper.
1: Yeah. So, as someone who's who's written about games, do you think writing for a game would be a, a, a extremely different endeavor?
2: Um, then, then writing static fiction. If you're well, if you're writing a a story like Mass Effect, it's probably not that much different. Um, than say writing a play. I think it would be more like writing a play than writing a novel. You'd have a lot more dialogue and a lot less exposition. Um, certainly the action sequences aren't anywhere. Like
0: you you may put a little bit of director's notes, but what mm-hmm. will happen, I'm sure, when you end up in the gameplay bits, is that's going to be defined by the technology and the controls far more than it's going to be defined by the artistic intent and I'm sure it bounces back in these studios, but I think you're absolutely right. You can't sit there and go, I want exactly this to happen, because go, we just can't do that.
2: Yeah. Uh, but since I I also come from a software development background, um, I you know, I like to think I understand that side of things a little. And what I would really like to do is work with a game designer to create a game that's more like a roguelike game, uh, more like Minecraft or Dwarf Fortress, where it... Creates a map of some kind, either an actual map of uh, a, a fictional place that you have to go through, or a map of a narrative. And then, um, as you play that map, uh, the narrative emerges naturally. Um, I think that would be a really fun project to do. But um, I guess, but if, I guess if
1: some... you just need to find the game designer with the time.
2: Yes, and I am not the game designer with the time. <laughs>
1: Yeah. But yeah, it sounds like that you you wouldn't be trying to you're trying to write a game that pleases the player rather than one which tries to exploit the player, which we'll come to in a moment.
3: Point two. Camfm.co.uk. Your station. Your Cam FM.
1: So that was Anima by Alex Smoke from his album uh, Paradolia, which is one of the many spellings of the phenomenon where humans see patterns and faces in random data.
2: And uh, games always take advantage of that. Um, they always require the cooperation of the player uh, to complete the feedback loop. To think that the NPC is a sentient being when it's actually a few lines of script that somebody wrote. And then some games uh, exploit that. Some games exploit their position in your mind. Uh, The most obvious example being slot machines and other casino games, which are uh, calibrated to provide intermittently random rewards timed just so you will keep uh, putting coins into the slot machine.
1: Right, and, and, and this, this has been the case in video games for a, a, a long time. They, so I think RPGs are the main culprit here. That, that, that they they have these big sections of you know, of grinding to to level up, and so that, that they have to provide just enough reward to make you to, to, to make you enjoy sticking at the game for in in the way the designers intended. But the designers aren't really profiting from that uh, directly. Well, they are,
0: because World of Warcraft subscription.
1: That's a good point.
0: So this is one that's very questionable is World of Warcraft has and wants you to grind for as long as possible. And So leveling up is one way of doing it. That you have to play for so long to get to the next character level when you get a new ability. And then once you get to the end of the game, then they do it by giving you better and bigger items or gear. And um, I mean, it's very telling that the player's called. You use the word yourself, grinding. Um, just this idea of just churning away at the game. For... What isn't story anymore? It is just literally... You get a little bit of story, but you're actually spending an awful lot of time doing something which is fairly monotonous. And I, I certainly I've played World of Warcraft long enough to know that I kind of don't want to go back to it because it ended up not being a game. It ended up being a job uh, to end up be able to play more of a game. You're going, like, well, I played this because it was a story originally, but you just lost that. Right. Uh, and I, I think that's...
1: And, and, and there's a whole... Class of um, m- mobile kind of casual games, which takes us even further than than World of Warcraft does, I guess.
0: Yeah. So the game that's been a well, Tiny Tower is the one we've chatted about before. It's this game uh, where you build a little tower and you give your people rooms to rent and their housing. It reminds us a bit of I know it reminded you will of Sim Tower,
1: which 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 I really enjoyed playing and. One of its only downsides is you have to leave it alone for a few hours to let to, know, to let your profitable tower work. But I thought, oh, you know, this, this, this the mobile game space lets you put your phone in your pocket while it's happening. So it doesn't matter that it, it's only interesting in short bursts.
0: Except the game is geared completely to the actually getting money out of you by having this thing that if you want to make the game to go quicker, you have to pay. And a lot of things that you want to do are actually basically just monotonous and pointless. And there isn't any aim to the game. I mean, it doesn't have to be an aim in the traditional sense. You know, SimCity Sim Tower had an aim of you built a tower. But there isn't even really that in Tiny Tower. It's more you just click on buttons to keep the little guys happy.
1: Right. The, 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 none of the actions you perform are that enjoyable at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. And it is it's, it's very simplistic with very little reward um, but at the same time there is that sort of addictive behavior that it's it's to mm-hmm. produce your tower if you just want the aesthetic of a tower which is designed to be addictive um, you have to keep plugging away at it and you have to the only way you can do it quicker is, as I say, is to spend real hard cash which is what's the really nasty thing about it
1: yeah and it's quite hard to break out of the habit of playing as well I found though I, yeah, my- I, I never spent any money
2: my personal weakness is the Rune Factory series, which is a spin-off of the Harvest Moon series. And if you imagine Diablo, where you go out and, and whack things forever and they drop uh, treasure, and then you cross it with Farmville, where you click on things forever and, and things grow in there, you'll have a picture of the, the form of addiction that uh, prevails in Rune Factory um and there it's it's a standalone game that you buy and i think the reason there's so much grinding is just so they can say this is a this is a hundred hour game you're going to get your money's worth i'd
0: rather a one-hour game that was fun than a hundred hour game (laughs) i mean it's you'll have to pay 20 quid for a movie and then you'll win which is like three two hours long and then complain about a four-hour game you spent 50 quid on you kind of go why why do people want it's really what people expect this length of hours from games which isn't a good thing if it's
2: rubbish it's it's not even that the game is rubbish it's that it sort of traps you in this feedback loop where you're you're getting enjoyment out of it but it's the very primitive lizard brain sort of enjoyment and to break out of that i have i have had to cultivate the fine art of rage quitting of just suddenly deciding <laughs> <laughs> that this is incredibly boring and I don't want to play it anymore, so I'm going to quit right now.
0: But that's the uh, thing, isn't it? it? You're saying it's this sort of small part of your brain playing. It's not like you enjoy it. It's a fact. It's addictive that you want to improve yourself. You want to get that bit further, but actually, you're not enjoying it. It's not giving pleasure. But part of your brain is addicted to progressing in the game, and it's totally designed behind that idea. And you kind of feel this is wrong. We we've written games which aren't fun for the gamer.
1: So there's there's this great scene in um, Constellation Games, which I suppose is a spoiler, but it's relatively early on. Um, that there's this uh, character Dana, who is um, another character's um, prim- primitive AI girlfriend, who runs on his phone, um, and she's been designed to force um, the player to buy her things.
2: Yeah, the uh, the protagonist of Constellation Games has a couple of moments where he decides he's going to save the day with his knowledge of computer programming. And the first one is this early decision to jailbreak Dana so that she doesn't want all of this useless stuff anymore. Um, And of course, this has unintended consequences later on in the book, but at least this gets uh, her back into a more traditional romantic relationship between a human being and a piece of software.
1: In as much as that can be a traditional... uh... (laughs) relationship
2: i would say romantic attachment happens even now when when ais are very primitive because of the eliza effect where people again let their own brains do fill in the gaps where the software is missing and uh convince themselves that there's a person uh behind what's a pretty primitive piece of software
1: so for anyone who isn't familiar with eliza it's a um virtual psychiatrist program which basically turns around everything the user types into it into a question
2: Um, and works
0: quite well at convincing people that it's real or it's a person more
2: than a computer what do you mean it turns everything the user types into a question well (laughs) thank you for that wonderful example
0: yeah well i think at that point uh we can probably call it a close today but um thanks for coming along leonard and um hopefully you don't fall in love with your iphone or other brand of intelligent phone device
2: that would not be a good fate for me.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, and as we um, said earlier, if you want to catch up with Leonard, you can catch him on Twitter at LeonardR, I believe.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you want to, the, the publisher of Constellation Games is The books, I think the book's right there on the front page.
0: Okay, well, um, yeah, and we'll see you next series, I guess. Cheers.